welcome to the primary ride home for Friday, May 31st, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, a look at how millennials, Gen X, and Gen Z voters turned out in 2018. Warren releases a childcare cost calculator. Greenpeace releases a scorecard on the candidates' climate positions. And the new DNC debate requirements are really not going over great with some campaigns. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today, on Wednesday, Pew Research released a bunch of new data about the 2018 midterm elections. Now, I did talk about this very early on in this show, mainly the first two weeks, but this week's news is somewhat bigger and more specific than that. Here's the headline Newsweek gave it. Quote, Young Americans outvoted baby boomers in 2018 midterm elections. Millennials doubled 2014 turnout. End quote. Yeah, for the first time ever in a midterm election, the generations younger than the baby boomers actually cast the majority of the votes. That is a big change, and it's likely the beginning of a new normal in voting patterns. If the 2020 general election is anything like the 2018 midterm election, we're going to see a whole new ballgame. And guess what? A new generation of players just joined the team. So let's take this point by point. First up, essentially everybody turned out in record numbers to vote in 2018, so that's kind of the backdrop of the entire story. Boomers, between ages 54 and 72, had their highest turnout in a midterm election ever. Yes, ever. For a midterm, anyway. Enthusiasm was super high, and we saw 64% of that age group actually show up and cast a ballot. That blowout voting performance added up to just over 44 million boomer votes. That is even more impressive because almost 9 million boomers actually died between the 2014 midterms and the 2018 midterms. And not only was turnout up in terms of the percentage, it was also up in terms of raw votes. Okay, so then there's the second point which we covered on this show in the very early days. Generation Z and Millennials together cast a total of 30.6 million votes in 2018. Now, that's a lower number than the boomer total, but if you take Millennials alone, their raw vote count, like the number of people who filled out a ballot, essentially doubled from 2014 to 2018. It doubled. And there is still a ton of room within that generation to grow because only about 42% of millennials voted at all in 2018. If they voted in boomer percentages, millennials would beat boomer vote totals right now. Also, this was the first midterm election in which Generation Z voters were actually old enough to cast votes, and 30% of them did so. Not bad for a midterm, but that's less than half the turnout percentage of boomers, and still somewhat behind millennials. So, to my Generation Z listeners, listen up. 2020 is your moment. Pew Research estimates that in 2020, Generation Z will account for 10% of eligible voters overall. That is more than enough to swing a national election. That vote matters, and that vote barely existed in the previous presidential election. Generation Z cast just 2% of the overall votes in 2016. So this is a true wild card. It's a new group casting a big chunk of votes for president, and we gotta pay attention to that. All right, third up, we have Generation X. For the first time ever in a midterm election, more than half of my slacker generation actually showed up to vote. 
Yeah, this is still a lower percentage than the boomers, but the total numbers and the fact that the Gen X population actually increased due to naturalization add up. So here is the shocking thing. If you add up these younger generations of voters, Gen X, Millennials, and Gen Z, in 2018, more of those young people voted than boomers and everybody older than boomers all put together. This is the first time this has ever happened in a midterm election, and it will not be the last. One fourth note before we dig deeper, which is the percentage of American voters who belong to the silent generation. That's the group that came before the boomers. These are people like, for instance, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Mike Gravel. Two of those guys are in their mid-70s, and Gravel is 89. That group still accounted for 13% of the overall vote in the 2018 midterm, so there is still a strong base there, currently a bigger base than Generation Z. So we shouldn't forget about them when doing our math. They also turned out in roughly the same percentages as boomers in 2018. The problem for that group is simply a function of time. The group will continue to dwindle as time marches on. Meanwhile, Gen X, Millennials, and Gen Z are all increasing in size. That's because the number of new naturalized citizens in the first two groups there is bigger than the number of people who die each year in those groups. And many members of Generation Z are still in school, just waiting to reach voting age. Okay, so I want to hit the pause button here for just one moment. It is very easy to get excited and misread this story. This is not the first time that the younger generations combined have outvoted these particular older generations. Actually, that happened in 2016. There's a link to a really good Pew Research story on that in the show notes. The reason this is such interesting news has two components. Okay, I guess I just listed four numbered points, so I'm going to switch to letters now. Sorry, bear with me. Point A is that this was a midterm election. Generally, midterm elections have lower turnout than general presidential elections. So part of what's interesting here is that younger people showed up anyway, and they continued to outpace the older generations just like they did two years ago. This is not the normal pattern that we see in previous midterm elections. All right, point B is that the overall turnout of the younger generations goes up like a hockey stick on the graph from 2014 to 2018. It is genuinely shocking when you see the picture. In 2014, the older generations were still totally crushing it. They cast way more votes than young people, and there was this massive gap between the boomers and everybody else. Check the show notes for a link to that nice big graph showing that, and then showing how it changed in 2018. So what happened this past midterm election is that young voters showed up. This is the moment in American history when the baton is passed to the younger generation. All that young people have to do to start controlling the outcome of elections is to keep voting. Back in February, Senator Elizabeth Warren introduced a plan to help families pay for the cost of early childcare, including pre-K. The basics of that plan are that if your family makes less than twice the federal poverty level, childcare would be free. The federal government would subsidize it for you. If you're curious what the federal poverty level is, there's a link in the show notes showing guidelines. Here's a short version. For most states, it's about $25,000 for a family of four. So I want to give you one example. 
Warren's plan would make childcare free for a hypothetical family with two kids making $50,000 a year or less. For families making more, she would limit the cost to no more than 7% of that family's income. But as with lots of policy involving math and income and stuff, it is hard to tell precisely what this policy would mean for you or your family. So yesterday, Warren's campaign released an interactive calculator on her campaign website. It walks you through a series of steps asking how many kids you have under the age of five, what your total family income is, how many people live in your home, roughly how much you pay right now for childcare, and so on. The calculator also reassures you that as you're doing this, they are not saving the information. They're just using it for this one session. Then at the end, it tells you precisely what your family would pay for childcare until your children turn five years old and how much you would save under Warren's plan versus the current system. And even if you don't qualify, for instance, if you make a ton of money and you pay relatively little for childcare, it tells you what the policy is and why you might support it anyway. It also pops up a super annoying full-screen ad asking you to support the campaign right as you start to read your own result, but I guess that's how campaign websites work these days. Anyway, this calculator is Warren's second so far. The other one is for student loan debt, which is another policy that has a fairly complex set of math behind it that leads most people to say, huh, interesting policy, and then immediately follow up by saying, yeah, okay, cool, but how exactly would that affect me and my kids, right? Responding to Warren's tweet announcing the new calculator, Twitter user Nick Clench posted a screenshot of his results along with a comment referencing the movie Django Unchained. He wrote, quote, You had my curiosity, but now you have my attention, end quote. The screenshot shows that under Warren's plan, his family would save $27,500 on childcare every year adding up to a total savings of $68,750 by the time his child turns five years old. Warren's approach in making these calculators makes me wonder if this kind of interactive tool needs to be the new normal, meaning every time you release a policy like this one, one that has a pocketbook effect on normal people and normal families, it is smart to go ahead and make a calculator like this on day one. The only surprise to me is that the policy came out in February, but it took until late May for the calculator. Anyway, go check it out, link in the show notes, and see how much you might save. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
Yesterday, Greenpeace USA put out a scorecard for each of the Democratic primary candidates. They used a series of metrics based on the Green New Deal and policy around use of fossil fuels to grade each candidate. Not surprisingly, the one candidate in this race with a single-issue campaign on climate change, that's Governor Jay Inslee of Washington, came in first with an A-. But honestly, there is not much daylight separating Inslee from Bernie Sanders, who came in second with a B+. Same with Cory Booker, who came in third, also with a B+. Rounding out the top five are Kirsten Gillibrand and Elizabeth Warren, both with B grades. Now, before I go further with this, I have to comment on methodology. Greenpeace, to their credit, actually published a lengthy document on Google Docs listing their scoring methodology. There's a link to that in the show notes. They list every data point they measured and how many points they gave it and said their grades were based on candidates' responses to a questionnaire or on their stated policies and voting records since 2013. If no information was available, the candidate got zero points on that item. So, incidentally, here is the list of candidates who actually filled out the questionnaire. Booker, Gabbard, Gillibrand, Inslee, and Warren. That's it, just five candidates. The rest left the Greenpeace team combing through their climate policies, if they have them, their voting records, and so on. But okay, here's a weird thing. They are scoring on a 100-point scale. That's kind of normal to those of us who take tests and get grades and stuff. 100 points is the most, and zero points is the least. But they consider an A grade to be anything over 80 points, and a B is 55 to 79 points. You can get a C even if you score only 30 points out of 100. Now look, I don't know where you went to school, but that is not how letter grading works where I'm from. It also seems weird that the top candidate, Inslee, manages to just barely scrape by at precisely 80 points, which they call an A-, and their criteria just happens to define the A range as starting at, you guessed it, 80 points. Okay, moving on, the other notable takeaway from this ranking is that Joe Biden is second from the bottom in the Democratic field with a D-. The only candidate below him is John Hickenlooper. According to an NBC News story, quote, while Biden received a D-, his low grade is primarily due to lack of info on his positions, Greenpeace USA spokesman Ryan Schleter told NBC News, suggesting that he may have room to improve, end quote. The other major feature of this web-based scorecard is giant buttons to literally, quote, praise or shame, end quote, each candidate based on their performance on the scorecard. If you click the buttons, they start a draft Facebook post for you. So, you know, make of this what you will, and I really wish that I had gotten C's for all of my 30% scores on math tests back in high school. And last up today, we are now seeing the fallout from the DNC's surprise announcement on Wednesday that it would increase the requirements for candidates to participate in the third debate. The point here is, a lot of the lower-tier candidates and their campaigns feel that this move by the DNC is essentially shutting them out, and it's doing so kind of early, before any primary voting even happens. In a piece for the New York Times by Shane Goldmacher and Lisa Lehrer, we hear a bunch of off-the-record info from the lower-tier campaigns whose candidates are in serious danger of not meeting the new requirements, and thus not getting on the stage in the third debate. Reading from the article, Quote, While the Democratic National Committee had long intimated it would raise the bar to qualify for later debates, many 2020 strategists were stunned by the 130,000 donor threshold 
which doubles the requirement for the first two debates in June and July, and which few are close to hitting. Some candidates questioned whether the party's new donor threshold would winnow the field too severely before most voters even tune in to the race. Most declined to discuss their frustration with the DNC's rules on the record or to indicate how exactly they would shift tactics, saying their campaign plans were confidential. But campaign after campaign said the party's donor requirements are skewing the way they allocate resources, forcing them to choose between investing in staff or pouring more money into ads on sites like Facebook, where prices are soaring to dizzying new heights. Two campaigns said digital vendors are currently quoting them prices of $40 and up to acquire a new $1 donor, end quote. So, yeah, this is a classic example of the market responding to a sudden increase in demand. Right now, the DNC has essentially told every candidate, hey, you need a ton of new donors, you need them really soon, and if you don't get it done, we won't put you on TV. And this is before any debates have even been held. And because of that, it's before most people have even seen any of these candidates in action. So if you're a lower tier candidate right now, what exactly are you supposed to do? Do you just like hang out for a month and hope the debates give you a huge bump? I wouldn't. Right now, only four candidates have publicly declared that they already meet the new DNC requirements. And those are Buttigieg, Harris, Sanders, and Warren. According to the Times, it is likely that Biden and O'Rourke are there already based on previous data or they're about to hit that mark. Okay, so that's six people out of 24. The remaining 18 candidates are caught in a real bind right now. They have to choose how to spend their money. For many, the choice is either spend a pile of money on ads to hit this new donor number or go visit early voting states and talk to voters which is what, you know, normal primary campaigns would be doing right now. But that might not generate the kind of numbers that they need. Keep in mind, they will be looking for donations and increased polling numbers during the summer, when it is hardest to get people to engage in politics. So stay tuned for much more frustration on this front. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Okay, on the way out for the week, I want to cram in one last mini-story. The DNC has told Refinery29 that at every debate, there will be at least one woman moderator. That's a good policy, and I'm kind of surprised it wasn't a policy already, but I'll take what I can get. So, good job, DNC, on that one. All right, as always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all on Monday. Mm-hmm.